All right, Kiss Army. You wanted the best, you got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Gary Schaller. And this is James Hager. And we've got a really exciting show for you tonight. First of all, we're nearing our third anniversary, which is really cool. I, I really didn't think it would last this long. I know I said that last year when we had, had our second anniversary, but I really, it amazes me. We've been doing this for three years and it just keeps getting better. And something very cool happened that is a first in, in podcast history and we want to talk a little bit about that. Later on, we're going to have uh, an interview to play for you with a very cool guest, someone who... Um, is going to be featured prominently in a book that's coming out, a KISS book called The KISS Compendium. Um, and we'll get to that. But first, uh, Ferk, we, we lied to our listeners, didn't we? We sure did. Um, no one likes to be called a liar, but the fact of the matter is, we did so. Um, a couple of shows back, we promised to give away two copies of Detroit Rock City. And... Um, I don't know. I guess we just kind of forgot. We, we suck. We said that we would do it in the next episode. Next episode came around. We completely didn't do it. So now we're going to make amends and we're going to announce the, the two winners. I'm sorry that we're such liars. Why are we such liars? Um, I, I don't know. I, I just, it's hard, but I, I'm going to try to be better. The first winner is Alex Walker. He's also known to podcast listeners and message board frequenters. I don't know if that's a word. As Bag Boy, he's been on the show before. He's called in. He's contributed content. Uh, congratulations, Alex. And the other winner is Brian Dinger. Um, they were both correct. The question was, who was the contestant? Uh, what was her uh, number and name? The contestant in the lookalike contest in Kiss Meets the Phantom. And the answer is uh, contestant number seven, Lisa Ashton. So congratulations to both of you. You deserve your... Uh, Detroit Rock City DVDs. Rock on. And so, like I mentioned, later on in the show, we have a groovy interview to share with you. But first, why don't we tell them about the awesome thing that happened. It's a first. After 11 years as a fan, I did finally get to see KISS live. So all those years getting into KISS and becoming like a diehard fan, like you said, and you know your first new KISS record comes out, which is Sonic Boom, and finally you get a chance to see them. And one of the things I think is really cool is that you did something that I did a few years back in 2003. I did this. You brought family with you to the show. Absolutely. Well, okay, here's the thing. I go to a lot of rock concerts. I mean, you know, that's that's my favorite pastime. I don't make a lot of money. I mean, I work in a photo lab while I go to school. But if I have extra money to spend, it basically goes to whatever concert I wanted to see at the time. And when tickets for KISS went on sale, I live in a, t- in a town called Nicholasville, directly south of Lexington. Kentucky. I said, you know, as soon as this tour came out, I finally have, you know, the financial stability to an extent to go see a show or two. I said, you know, I'd go see them if they came to Columbus, Ohio, Cincinnati, Louisville, Lexington, or Nashville. And they announced Nashville. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of, well, it's, I'll probably come closer next year, you know. And she was the one that was saying, no, no, do it. Do it. It's time. You need to go see Kiss. Mother knows best, man. Absolutely. I got to say, man, I think it's really cool that, that you and your mom went to the show. And, and you know, there's definitely going to be people, people are going to talk shit. And people are going to say, uh, it's, you know, blah, 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 you brought your mother to a show. Let me tell you something. They played Madison Square Garden in 2003. I brought my mom, I brought my dad. My brother and I brought our parents, basically. And my parents, you know, have been really cool about my kiss thing. Just like my wife has been really cool about it, just like a lot of my friends have been really cool about it, because it's kind of an odd thing to be into, let's let's be honest here. And my parents, you know, from the time I was five years old, had to listen to all those songs over and over again, and, and when I was 13 and started playing guitar, it was even worse. They had to listen to little nuances and segments of those songs over and over again on repeat play as I tried to teach myself how to play. And... It was a real thrill to bring them to the concert. They had a good time. I had a good time. And it was really fun because at various points they turned to me and be like, oh, I recognize this. I know this song. Um, so I think it's cool that you brought your mom in. And kudos to her for being a cool mom and taking some great photographs. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like I've always thought, you know, the people that give you shit for something like that are the people that wish their mother was that cool. You know, I mean, I've went to shows with, with, 
really close friends of mine and stuff. And she's always there because she always, it doesn't matter, you know, how old I get. She always, we're into the same music. I mean, first off, how cool is that? I was never embarrassed by stuff like that. You know, my parents like it, so I can't like it. No, I was never embarrassed by stuff like that. You know, when, you know, my mom, she was a huge Kiss fan when she was a kid and never got to see them. You know, she had a mother that wasn't cool, like my mother. She had a mother that threw her Kiss albums in a river, you know. You know, and it's 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 really cool when, you know, I'm walking out of, there was a, a like a barbecue restaurant slash bar across from the, the place, uh, across from the Samay Center, a place called Rippy's. As we walk out, there's some, some of the religious fanatics. It was just like Detroit Rock City downtown, you know. I mean, they had everybody in Kiss makeup, and you had the religious fanatics passing out their literature saying, you know, you need help, son, you need help, son. You know, and it was it was so cool that, you know, my mother wasn't a part of that. Right. She, you know, she was walking with me, you know, and, you know, like I said, in a week we're going to see Rob Zombie, and I wouldn't take anyone else. Talk to me about the audience. Like, what, you know, what did you see in terms of the... You know, people are people are saying it's not the diehards. It is the diehards. It's a mixture of both. It's young and old. What are you seeing? Well, I see a lot. I see a lot of it. It is a mixture of both. You know, you see a lot of people. There were people in particular sitting next to me uh, that I think what it looked to me was the husband was a diehard Kiss fan. The child was there because they couldn't find a babysitter, and mom was there, bored out of her mind. Because they sat the entire show, and I think they clapped along and sang rock and roll all night. Okay, I gotta, I gotta stop you for a second, and everybody, everybody, go and get your copy of Kiss Alive. Okay, CD or vinyl doesn't really matter. Now, turn, turn it over. <laughs> okay, and right there, there they are holding the sign. Right, there's the two guys holding the sign. Now, if you look directly to the right of it, <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Okay, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Okay. There's the dude. There's a dude and, and a girl, right? <laughs> and she's like, "Oh, come on, honey, it's Kiss. It's gonna be a great concert." And he's like, "Whatever, man. I wanted to see Ario." Yeah, it's really a funny, funny thing to uh, point out. How was the turnout? The turnout. It looked, you know, during Buck Cherry, I was really concerned because there were basically two sides, entire sides of the lower bowl that were completely empty and there were lots of spots through the floor that was empty a lot of seats in the upper arena that was empty uh, and then they file in right once the opener's done they start to come once the opener's done and right about the time that the kiss curtain dropped which when that kiss curtain dropped i for some reason i got cold chills you know oh, of course just when the curtain drops over the stage while they're finalizing the preparations or whatever i freaked out but you start seeing people file in and finally by showtime i mean the place is really close to capacity now, wait, I want to ask you something, okay, because you, you mentioned this. You said, you know, when the kiss curtain dropped, you got chills. Bring us back to that moment. Okay. Well, when I first walk in the venue, you know, we meet a lot of cool people. I give out the kiss, the podcast link, because that's just how I roll. Um, we go in, we get our seats, we sit down. And we meet some really cool people and everything. Buck Cherry's on. When I first sit down, even before Buck Cherry, there's the two screens on each side of the stage. And they're just displaying different KISS logos. And then there's the KISS Army banners behind them. And when I saw those, it was like, for the first time, I kind of felt it in the pit of my stomach. Like well, Because the reality I, hits you, right? I mean, like yeah. you're really in the arena. It's really Kiss. You're really going to see them. I was always a Kiss fan, but my dad passed away in 2003, and not to sound too corny, but when people say, you know, Kiss got me through this, or Kiss got me through that, I understand what they're saying. You know, it's that music and that, you know, the positivity that comes from that music that really, you know, gives you something to hold on to when life's not always giving you something to hold on to. Absolutely. You know, so, I mean, these this band, as much as I get frustrated with them sometimes, as we all do, you know, it didn't matter at this point. It was, you know, after 11 years, I was in the building, I was seeing Kiss. You know, and not only was I seeing Kiss, I was seeing Kiss touring behind a new album. I wasn't seeing Kiss, you know, special guests Kiss, you know, at the Kentucky State Fair or whatever. No, I was seeing Kiss promoting their new record, Sonic Boom. Something that a lot of us, me included, even a year or two years ago, didn't think would ever happen. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I remember we talked about it on this show, just hoping and hoping when back when Jigoko Ritsuden came out, you know, hoping that this maybe they would do it, but 
You got it, man. And it happened so fast. You know, I don't know if anybody else noticed that, but boom, they might do a new record. Boom, they're doing a new record. Boom, there's no ballads. Boom, Sonic, boom. Oh, absolutely. You know, it was, I mean, it was all very quick. And, you know, here I am, just not even a month from the release of the record, you know, and I'm seeing Kiss in the flesh. And I'm sitting there, and everything goes on. Buck Cherry hits the stage. They play. And like I said, Buck Cherry, if they'd been at any other concert, I'm sure I would have enjoyed them. But the whole time, I'm just thinking, come on. Come on. Play Crazy Bitch and just be over with it. Right. You know? Let's just get it. Let's just get ready. I'm ready. You know, so I'm sitting there, and, and my mom, she has, she goes and does something. I guess she went to the restroom or something. To be honest with you, she told me, and I didn't even pay attention. I was just so totally in awe. She uh, went off and did her thing, and I'm just sitting there by myself, and it was like people are texting me. You know, it's really cool on these message boards and stuff. You meet people, and, you know, Gary, you and I met on these message boards and stuff. Right. And, you know, I talked to you before the show and after the show, you know, and I've got friends, you know, texting me from the message boards, friends texting me from home, people calling me from, I guess, KISS FAQ that I met again on Facebook. They got my number from Facebook and they're calling me somewhere up in the upper arena. They're calling me, asking me if I'm ready. Nice. You know, so it's like this really positive atmosphere going and then all of a sudden, you know, they start pulling curtains off. I'm thinking, yes, I get to see the stage. And then as soon as they start to pull anything, boom, st- curtain drops. And then Led Zeppelin's rock and roll starts playing. And, and, and you know that that's the the cue. That's the cue. So I'm sitting there. I'm like, holy shit. Yeah, that's all I could say. You know, pardon my language. But that was my thought was just, holy shit. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, Wow. They're back there. They are back there. And, you know, then the lights go down. The hum starts. And I'm like, oh, my God. They're back there. talked about how it's easy to be at a show and hear something great and then when you listen to it back later you think eh, maybe not and that really didn't happen with this show I mean Paul sounded you know he sounded solid you know Gene sounded solid you know I mean they don't sound like they did in 1978 but they're not 25 anymore they're guys in their late 50s to 60s and they're still out there doing it and kicking ass at it Strutter was really solid. Um, Let Me Go Rock and Roll was was really cool. Hotter Than Hell was really cool. Um, Hotter Than Hell is one of the songs on this tour. If I'm not mistaken, I think they played on the Destroyer tour. And then they dropped it until 92. And then after 94 or 95 or whatever, they dropped it until, what, 2003? But Hotter Than Hell, I mean, it was great. And I really like how they end the song, and then they come down for the last crash. Bah! And then when they do that, the sirens start and everything. You know, it really kind of gave it a 
it made it feel special instead of the sirens just being part of the song like they feel in, in Firehouse. It it kind of gave. It almost made Hotter Than Hell feel like it was its own song, and then Gene's breathed fire. Instead of Gene breathing fire during Hotter Than Hell, it felt like Gene breathed fire after Hotter Than Hell. And it was really kind of cool. So then after Hotter Than Hell, people started to riot and throw chairs at each other, and the police had to come with the shields and the the uh, fire hoses and the... Folks, uh, I think what Gary is talking about is the fact that Tommy Thayer did in fact sing Shock Me. Um, let me start with this. I will admit, I'm not going to mince words, I'm not the biggest fan of Tommy Thayer singing Shock Me. With um, Sonic Boom just coming out, and with Tommy having his own signature song in When Lightning Strikes, I don't understand why, when promoting a new album, they would choose Shock Me. I would much rather them choose When Lightning Strikes and, you know, let Tommy have his own signature moment, you know. But, that being said, solid performance by the band was not one of my favorite songs of the night. I didn't boo them either, you know. It was... It was just a song. So then came Modern Day Delilah. How was it? Well, to be honest with you, it was kind of a mixture of elation and sadness. I saw Def Leppard in Cincinnati this past July, and they played a 16 or 17 song set, and in that set they played one new song, and no one cared. But the very next song they played, I don't know, Photograph or something, everybody freaks out again. But it did. It got a respectable response, and Modern Day Delilah came off really well. Paul sounded fine. Um, I really enjoyed hearing it. I love that song. I love this record. I was really excited though. Right before Paul did Modern Day Delilah, you know, he introduced Sonic Boom or whatever, and said, "We're gonna play a song. Hell, we might even play two. Calling Dr. Love. No intro at all, which I love. Paul kind of cut down on some of the stage raps. So we got three in a row being Modern Day Delilah, Say Yeah, and then Dr. Love without any Paul introduction at all. And it really surprised me. Calling Dr. Love to that point, with the exception of Deuce, got the biggest pop of the night. Love to see you! But 
Dr. Love, I mean, people were singing along. It came off really well. Uh, Eric's backing vocals are, to me, very, very underappreciated in any way in the world of Kiss. And they're really invaluable during Calling Dr. Love. I mean, the high parts, Eric is all over. So then it's uh, She, Parasite, and 100,000 Years back-to-back. Okay. Well, this was the block of songs that, if I had to pick any block of songs in the show, that I was the least happy with, and I'll tell you why. She, to begin with, I will go ahead and admit, is not one of my favorite Kiss songs. It's just one one of those songs that have always came off to me as a filler track. You know, I know that it's, especially in the early days, it was really important in the Kiss set list and everything, but she has never done anything for me. Um, it, Literally. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. But uh, not only is it not one of my favorite songs, I'm not in particularly happy with the way it's sounding vocally this year. How about Parasite? For my personal taste, I love I love Parasite. Um, I would have rather heard Do You Love Me because that song's kind of special to me. But, you know, Parasite was great too, one of my favorites. Thousand Years was by far the low light of the show for me. And that's kind of hard for me to say because 100,000 Years was one of the four or five songs, I guess I'll say five songs, that when I first watched that first extreme close-up that really drew me in. The others being Watching You, God of Thunder, um, I Stole Your Love, and War Machine. But it really thinks that when it seems like when you look and it says a hundred thousand years, they're not putting that in the title; they're putting it in the length. <laughs> For everybody listening, don't think that I'm complaining about this show because I am not in any way, shape, or form. You know, I will count this as one of the top five greatest experiences of my life. There are things I would change, and one hundred thousand years, I think it's over twenty minutes long at this show, and they can add. T- yeah, they can add two new songs in there. One of the things I'm really pumped to see back on this tour is Eric Singer playing his double bass kit. Yeah, I'm really excited that Eric's back in full force with his double kick kit. I mean, I know he's had a double bass pedal, but it's also cosmetically something. I love that Loud was great when he flew up there. You know, all the kids were pointing, you know, look, look, look. Uh, the crowd chant along, which is one reason I think they still keep it in the set list. Because, you know, it wasn't a huge hit or anything. But I think the crowd singing to the, hey, hey, yeah. I think that's why they still keep it in the set. And it was, you know, fun. And next up was Black Diamond. When the lights dim purple and Paul starts, you know, doing his little doodle on the guitar. It was absolutely religious for me. Black Diamond, far and away, is my favorite Kiss song. I mean, there's no, there is no competition. And the explosion, and when the song really got down to it, I had chills. sounded phenomenal. I mean, does he ever not sound phenomenal? It was like Black Diamond really represented what I was there for.
in all seriousness, the Rock and Roll Night's a song that I think, not maybe not all of us, but a vast majority of us sometimes just wish would go away. You know, great song, but it's not the only Kiss song. You know, but when the confetti flew and everybody in the place, including the two lamers next to me, were up on their feet singing along, it was like you look around and you realize, man, this is what Kiss is all about. And that's, you know, that's why as much as every time Rock and Roll Night comes up on my MP3 player, I skip it. I don't ever want them to drop that song. So then you had the encores, and pretty soon the night was over. How was that? Very positive experience. I mean, it was a great, great show. I mean, it was, I was very emotional, you know, there toward the end. And, you know, Paul, at the end of of the song Detroit Rock City, I don't know if they've done this at every show, but they did it at ours. They do a pause. They're posing. Eric's up on the on the platform, way up in the air. You know, Gene, Paul, and Tommy are at the front, and they freeze for like 30 seconds, and they don't move in this pose. And I guess it's like a photo op, you know. The spotlights are just on them, and then they end the song. I mean, it was just incredible, you know. And then you walk out, and God gave rock and roll to use playing, you know. What I mean, what an amazing show. Amazing. That's the word for it. We're obviously toward the end of Kiss's career. At least the current in, incarnation of Kiss with Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Um, I'll go as often as I can. I'll never miss a Kiss show within a reasonable distance for me again. So tonight on podcast we have an awesome guest, and I want to sort of start this off by talking a little bit about something that happens to me virtually every time I go to Target to buy toys. I collect toys. I, there I said it. It's out of the bag. I collect Star Wars toys. Have been since I was one year old. And every time, invariably, just about every time I'm in the toy aisle, there is a little kid talking to his mom or dad saying, I want Ben 10. Virtually every time. And I know from Ben 10 because I watch Cartoon Network and I watch uh, Star Wars on the Cartoon Network. And after Star Wars comes Ben 10. It's an awesome show, very creative. Kids love it, and the toys are awesome, too. And tonight, we are graced with the presence of someone who is part of the creative team that brought Ben 10 to life. The movie is coming out real soon, so see it, whether or not you have a kid. But um, you may know him from the Kiss comic books that came out from Dark Horse Comics uh, back around 2003. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the podcast, Joe Casey. Hello, hello. Amazing round of applause there, Joe. I, I'm serious. My fan club is out in force. <laughs> <laughs> and may um, that force be with you. Yes, exactly. Now, before we get started, um, it, it, you, you didn't just do the, the Dark Horse Kiss comic book. Let's let's like flesh out your resume just a little bit. Oh, boy. Uh, for example, books like The Flash, Superman, Batman, Alpha Flight. The Uncanny X-Men, Wolverine, The Incredible Hulk, Iron Man, Captain America. The list goes on and on. If you Chances are, if it's a big comic character out there, this guy's written for them. Yes, I've had my grubby paws on all of them. <laughs> yeah, but did you do Cerebus? That's the important question. I tried, but it was over. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and Dave, Sim, Dave Sim gave you the smackdown, huh? That's right, that's right. <laughs> It is is an honor as a comic book fan uh, to uh, talk to you, and uh, as a Kiss fan, it's it's amazing to find somebody that is working on a Kiss comic who actually is a fan. Can you tell us how you became a fan? Uh, sure. Uh, it was probably 1976 or 77, and a friend of mine in my first grade class brought in some of the KISS trading cards, which even in hindsight were, are, were amazing cards with amazing photography. And, you know, you, you look at them and it just captured my imagination. And he said, well, they're, you know, they're a band, they play music. And, you know, at that point, when you're six or seven years old, you're really coming from like, you know, Sesame Street records, basically. <laughs> and uh, so I, on the next trip to my grandfather's house, who lived out in the sticks somewhere? There was one Kmart, you know, store that was in his town, and uh, went in there and saw Kiss Destroyer. 
and again, as a as a you know six or seven year old kid, you see that cover, and uh, it, you know it's it's. I was already reading comic books, and it, it was just you know it called out to me, man. It called out to me. It's and, Conan. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was just you know it was crazy. So, um, got the record, went home to my you know grandfather's you know uh, trailer park trailer, and uh, put that record on and. Uh, it was done. I was done. It was. It was. Uh, it was love at first listen. So, so Destroyer was. Sorry, go ahead. No, well, no, go ahead. Yeah, Destroyer was the first record, and uh, it was probably it. It probably been out for about a year by that point, but that was the first one that I saw, and that was the first one that I bought, and not a bad way to start out. Not bad at all. It's always interesting. Like, for example, you mentioned the trading cards. That's what got you in. Mm -hmm. To a lot of people, it was the music. To a lot of people, it was the image. Some people, it was the comic books. And in your instance, it was some trading cards. Whoever would have thought of that? You know what I mean? It was just, I was just at the age where that was the only thing that I was going to come into contact with. You know, I mean, there wasn't a lot of kiss on the radio, obviously. Uh, They weren't on TV much if at all in you know 19 i you know i i just missed you know the fall in uh, halloween so there was nothing else on tv until probably the you know the movie and so they just weren't they just weren't around for you know a seven-year-old's sphere of influence but those trading cards you know i'd 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 bought star wars trading cards so i was sort of i knew that you know i knew that medium and but you know this was way beyond that and like I said, the photography of those trading cards was top notch. I mean, these were not these were quality trading cards, you know. Yeah. So they had that going for them too. These weren't uh, cheaply made or cheaply done. And great so, stuff on the back of them too. I think that was one of the first places that you got to read about, um, you know, the character origins. Like I, I think it was the top trading cards that mentioned like Peter Chris being uh, raised by. Tigers or something, and uh, Ace Ace having been stranded on Earth from Jendel and all that stuff, and it was it really added to the fantasy. Well, what I remember on the back of the cards was you put the cards together and it made a big picture. If you had oh, yeah. like all you know, however many of a set, you know, 125 of a set, it just made it made a huge picture when you put them together. Which I'm, I probably never had every card to make the picture, so right. uh, an, an unfulfilled dream. Oh man. I'm, <laughs> Sad about it already. So if anyone's listening and has an extra set of uh, 70s Kiss trading cards, you know where to send them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was one of those great uh, uh, cube shots where they're standing yeah. on the cubes. What an excellent photo shoot. The yeah. best, my favorite, Barry Levine, 1977. We mentioned that you did the Dark Horse Kiss comic books, um, and they are going to see – a reprinting of source uh, of of sorts in the Kiss Compendium hardcover, which comes out on November twenty fourth, two thousand nine. Um, it's going to be a, a huge book, from what I gather, one thousand two hundred and eighty pages. And this isn't done by some fly by night comic operation. This is by Collins Designs. This is an actual bookhouse putting this out. Yeah. How does it feel to see uh, your your work is going to continue on in this format? It's cool. I'm just glad, you know, that it's part of the comic book pantheon, you know. I mean, from to go from, you know, the Marvel comic stuff to to the McFarlane Psycho Circus stuff and then into the Dark Horse stuff and then I guess the the uh the Platinum uh books that came out, you know, like a year or two ago. It's just very cool to be a part of that. You know, I'm I'm really proud. And if I can make uh, those guys another dollar, I'm in. Wow, cool. I want to ask you about the time frame of the Dark Horse comic because there are certain moments in history that are really interesting, and sometimes they're the least productive moments. Right. Um, the Elder Era is an era that a lot of people are very interested in, probably because th- we didn't get enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and 2002, 2003, right up until the time they that uh, they did the symphony show and, and toured with Aerosmith, before that, between you know between the end of the farewell tour and that uh, symphony show, was one of those kind of drop out Twilight Zone moments in history. Right. Um, and 
I, I distinctly remember reading the Dark Horse comic and that being kind of my lifeline to uh, Kiss fandom because it was the, the one sort of flickering light saying this is still alive. Yeah. What was it like for you to be a part of that, and was that the vibe? Well, I, at the time, I, I I remember just feeling like, you know, the farewell tour was over, and I just thought, okay, this is the way that these guys are going to, you know, carry the brand beyond the existence of the band, or, you know, beyond the existence of, of the original band. I mean, but I had taken them at their word, just like everybody else. And I thought it was over. I thought they would never tour again. And so I just thought, okay, I guess this is it. This is how they're going to carry on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as something in, in the popular culture. So in that respect, I was kind of psyched. I thought, wow, it's I'm not competing with really a lot of other Kiss product out there other than the merchandise. Right. But in terms of like, a, you know, what you, I guess you could call original content. This was it, you know. There was no albums right. coming out, no tours. There was no anything. I think the last major release that they had put out was the box set, and that was two years previous. And Gene had put out his autobiography. Yeah, right. right. And between that and the box set, uh, you know, that that plus the Dark Horse comic was it. The beginning of it was a lot of conversation with Gene, and he was into it, man. He was really into it being something that would stand up in the marketplace, not just for the Kiss fans who, you know, he kind of knew would show up and buy this thing, but he wanted it to compete with what was going on, you know, in comics, in mainstream comics in 2003, which I thought was, you know, I sort of appreciated that as a guy who did it for a living, you know? Right. He just, he just wasn't interested in shilling his goods. It didn't, no, I mean, he's got a real deep, connection with the comic book medium from way back and you know and is you know he's always said that comic books you know taught him to to, uh to read english and was a big part of him of his assimilation into uh you know america and he's held them up you know he's held them in very high regard you know did fanzines when he was a teenager i mean he was he was way into it um now folks when i say that this guy's a kiss fan we we gave him a little homework to do we we said, tell us some maybe some rare tracks or a rare interview or something that you want to hear. He sent us a list about the length of my arm of possibilities that he would like to hear, and we're going to have him pick one right now at random. And and throughout the show, we will be playing some of his favorite moments of in history. So Joe, hit him with your first request. Uh, all right. Well, geez, I mean, maybe we should just go and. Uh some kind of um, chronological order. So uh, we've got to start out with the Wicked Lester band doing uh, Simple Type. Which, you know, you know, Kiss fans, I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll hear another song within that song, which is kind of why I picked it. It's, it's, um, it's kind of the ancestor of a, of a later Kiss song. Excellent. Well, spin that thing, Gary. It's very interesting. You're you're this Kiss fan who's a comic book professional, and you're friends with a gentleman by the name of Joseph Loeb, who wrote the TV series Smallville and many comic books, a a fantastic professional in his own right. And he was writing a movie. Can you tell us a little bit about that movie, how you got to know or, 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 or how Gene got to call your house because you knew Joseph Loeb. Can you set well, that whole situation up? 
Loeb started out in the 80s as a screenwriter. He wrote the first Teen Wolf movie, and uh, that was some early success. And after Teen Wolf, he and his writing partner uh, came up with this idea for this movie called Commando. They sought out Gene to play the lead, to attach him to play the lead in Commando. And that's how it was shopped around Hollywood for the longest time. Yes. I mean, this was Gene, you know, Gene in his movie actor period when he was doing Runaway and, and, and things like that. So it wasn't beyond the pale to, you know, attach Gene Simmons as a, you know, an actor in your movie. Um, but, you know, as fate played out, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger eventually did that part and the movie came out. It was a big hit. But uh, Gene and Loeb were, you know, friends ever we, since. We, we, we have to stop there for a second and consider this. <laughs> yeah. Now, just imagine if somehow he would have wound up doing that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Commando. Is there a chance that in the uh, the uh, governor would be Gene Simmons at this point? <laughs> it's just interesting. You just kind of think about that logic for a second. It kind of blows your mind. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but I, I thought it was worth checking out there. It is. It, it really uh, it puts a mental picture in your mind, doesn't it? So anyway, you know, obviously Gene and Loeb had a lot in common. There, you know, Loeb's a big comic book fan, so Gene, and they remained friends all through the years. And um, when the Dark Horse comic was being talked about, you know, Gene's default is always not just people that he knows, but the fact that Loeb was now a very big and popular comic book writer. And so I'm sure he told Dark Horse, ah, we'll get Loeb to do it. And Loeb was like, I'm a little busy. I don't think so. And one thing that Loeb is not is a Kiss fan. Uh, because he's, he's, he's quite a bit older than we are. And he just, I think he just missed that whole thing. Um, which is interesting in and of itself to come to Gene as literally an actor, as opposed to, you know, any of the other, you know, um, you know, weight that he carries as a as a personality in media. That kind of lends some credence to you know to some of the things that Gene has said that maybe fans have sort of brushed under the carpet, which is that his fame transcended Kiss. It wasn't oh. just that the Kiss name was attached to it. I'm that's absolutely right. I, I absolutely. I mean, he was a viable name in Hollywood for you know about three or four years there. Right. And, and so, yeah, it was not beyond the pale at all to seek out Gene Simmons to, to you know, attach to your movie to give it some juice. I mean, it made, made perfect sense. Um, so anyway, when, you know, Loeb, you know, begging off, he, he was, you know, he did the good thing and said, hey, there's a guy that I'm working with. Loeb and I were both writing for the Superman titles at the time at D.C., Said, and just basically put my name and said I was a big fan. I would, I would jump at a chance to do the gig, and he was right. I, I was I was psyched to do it, and and that's uh, and Gene called me up to talk about it, which was surreal to say the least. To get a call from Gene Simmons was bizarre. Set that stage for us. You're you're, you're there in in your house, and the phone rings, and on the other end, oh. hello, baby. Yeah, he came on strong like you know and not expecting a call like that but kind of being i guess i don't know who i am he i I pick up the phone and he goes you know joe this is gene simmons it was like a radio id you know hey full-on you know gene voice and in complete disbelief but totally trying to cover i was like oh yeah hey what's up like it's like it's an everyday thing that Gene Simmons calls you up, you know. <laughs> and I'm, and, you know, and it, he's like, you know, I got your number from Loeb. We're doing this Dark Horse comic. It's going to be more of a superhero vibe. And he says you might be interested. And now it's starting to dawn on me that I'm talking to Gene Simmons, you know. And my early bravado started to, you know, shall we say, crumble. You, your and, your voice cracked, and you developed immediate acne. Well, I was like, <laughs> I, I was like, you know, I, I, I went to see you, you know, many times in, you know, my hometown. And, and that's 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 when the whole, you know, uh, how was your mother conversation came up, you know, the typical. Did he joke. really? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> he was like he was like because I, I grew up in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. He was like, 
Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville, Tennessee. How is your mother? Exactly, exactly. And I was like, she's just fine, Gene. She's just fine. Now I got to ask <laughs> you a question. When 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 you picked up the phone, did you say, "This is Gene Simmons of the Rock Group Kiss"? No. <laughs> no, it was more like uh, he was more like he was doing a TV ID. He was like, "Joe, this is Gene Simmons." You know, that kind of he kind of. It was very, you know, hard and cold, you know. He didn't say, did he say kiss? <laughs> what? He didn't. He didn't. It was amazing. It was ma- I tried to get him to say it, but he wouldn't say it. At, at any point, did he compare the length of a word to the word gymnasium? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, he never did. He okay. never did. He, did. he did name drop a, a lot of contemporary comics uh, to kind of unnecessarily, in my opinion, prove his bona fides as a, as a sort of being up on the current comic book scene. And he talked about the authority and the ultimate line at Marvel. And I was like, Gene, man, you don't have to prove anything to me. I, I, it's fine. I get it. No, no problem. I'm on board. Now, this is a perfect time as any to, to pick another off-the-request line from Joe. Uh, you picked from 1986, or is that ni- – yeah, 1986, Toledo, Ohio. Yeah. Uh, give us the song. Well, I it's Calling Dr. Love, and I picked it because it, it was only recently that I even found out that they played this song on that tour. And uh, and probably had been the first time they played it in years at that point. It's a pretty it's a pretty killer version. It's it's you know, the it's is the asylum tour, so everything is played at incredibly fast tempos and I don't know, it just it's a it's a cool version of this song. Here we go. you will about the 80s and how goofy they may have looked but at the time that was a great era it was it was it was a blast it really was uh, you know gene uh, might have looked ridiculous in his sequined uh, robes and things but whatever you know i mean it's, that yeah, asylum be- was a asylum was a big record in my in my uh, teenage years trials by fire is an amazing song that is yeah i love that song and really it's only on the new record where they've sort of gone back to that I mean, Gene, in particular, going back to that, you know, this is my life, this is how I'm going to live it kind of, you know, uh, self-affirmation song, which he, you know, did so well in the 80s and kind of abandoned for a while. But, not, you know, my, my favorite song, because it is such a throwback to the 70s um, songwriting style, is uh, Gene's song, Yes, I Know, Nobody's Perfect. It seems yep. to be a favorite. Yeah. My favorite on the record. Fantastic. You know, we're talking about Kiss, we're talking about comic books, and so far, you know, we've heard about the phone call from Gene Simmons, and and certainly the narrative within the Kiss Army tends to be that if it's merchandise, if it's comic books, if it's something happening off stage and out of the studio, it's always Gene. But apparently with this comic book, Joe, that was not the case. Tell us what happened. Well, I did my outline for the first story, and I I basically 
wanted to do something where if they were going to be superheroes again, uh, I wanted to kind of try and recapture the vibe that I remembered from uh, 1995 and 96 when the reunion was happening, which to me was like, you know, it was like the Beatles getting back together. I mean, it was it was amazingly powerful and, you know, just hit me on all kinds of levels that I didn't even realize I had at the time. But so in the comic, I wanted them to come together in the same kind of way. They were they, they were characters that had been split apart and on their own for, for years. And now they were coming back together in a you know reunion kind of thing. Although in this case, it was the reunion of a sort of superhero team. So I figured since Gene was the guy that was the comic book guy, or so I thought, I would in a way tell the story from Gene's character's point of view. Uh, and I made him like this uh, sort of businessman that had not been the quote unquote demon for years and years and years. And he sort of regained his demonic self almost like Batman in the Dark Knight Returns, you know, the, the Frank Miller comic. Right. And that's and and then he sort of went off and gathered the other characters. And and they, they were off and running on their first adventure. So I turn in this outline, which is basically kind of a page by page breakdown of what the first issue was going to be. And you know, I'll admit right now it was very gene heavy. It was it was it was told from his character's point of view and I and I thought I was doing, you know, the right thing. I turn it in. My editor at Dark Horse sends it to, you know, sends it out to be approved. And he comes back to me and says, um, Paul Stanley wants to talk to you about this outline. Wow. I said, that's interesting. I didn't even know he read the thing. Like, oh, no, I sent it to both of them and he read it and he'd like to talk to you. Here's his number. Call him up and, you know, you guys need to talk. I was like, OK, cool. So I call up Paul Stanley and. You know, when I was growing up, Paul Stanley was the guy. I mean, everybody has their favorite, and Paul Stanley was 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 mine. And so I'm calling up Paul Stanley, and he, he picks up, and I'm like, Paul says, Joe, I'm, I'm writing a Kiss comic. I heard you read the outline. You wanted to speak to me? He's like, yeah, yeah, I read this thing. And uh, it's interesting. I, I, I guess you're a really big Gene fan. And I said, uh, what, 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 by what do you mean? Uh, he said, well, there's, it's this pretty gene heavy, a lot of gene stuff in here. And I was like, well, yes. And then I explained exactly what I just said, the rationale. He said, look, gene, uh, you know, may be sort of the public face of a lot of this stuff, but, but, but I look at everything. And I said, I understand that. I, I, my apologies, sir. And what can, what can we do to, to rectify this? <laughs> I imagine that hearing that is going to change how some people view the the merchandise comic book superhero aspect of uh, of the Kiss camp, um, because certainly the the idea is it's Gene, you know. Well, but it also it makes perfect sense though. And again, I was the knucklehead who didn't take it into account. Paul was the one who went to the you know co- uh, the high school of uh, music and art. And and of course we as we know since then he's you know got his paintings out there and. He's got a real artistic side to him. And even though he's not as much of a geek as Gene is, as he told me on the phone, he's not unaware of the the world of comics and, and that art form. But it, it is amazing to point out the uh, relationship that uh, should be inherent to everyone, but people have their... Their, their made up views and their minds of how things are. Uh, interesting to get that phone call from Paul. As a matter of fact, that leads us to our next track, live from 1984, Glasgow. I've had enough into the fire. Why did you pick this? This was from a uh, radio broadcast that they did. And I remember hearing this, you know, back when it was first broadcast. And uh, I'm not quite sure if this, if it's from this show or not, but I know that one of these European. Uh, animalized shows they opened with this song which that is amazing to me i mean there's you know we all know there's you know just a maybe you could count on one you you can count on one hand the song the openers for kiss concerts you know there's there's basically there's deuce i stole your love detroit rock city world detroit rock city uh creature of the night that's kind of it really and psycho circus i guess now Hold, hold me, touch me. 
right? Fanfare. But to, you know, to open with this kind of album cut that opened the record, you know, I, I don't know. I, I always got to kick out. And, of course, it's a killer version. This is a killer live version. Here it is. people don't realize this but you actually wrote the authorized sequel to kiss meets the fan of the park that's right baby it was me i'm responsible i take full credit a lot of people don't even know that that story is out there see what you missed by not reading comic books i know i know and i thought nobody's done it yet and basically the story is as they're picking up their superhero career they decide well let's check up on all these sort of old cases that we did back in the day, and so they go and they check on Abner Devereaux, who is now in an insane asylum. As it turns out, that that Abner is a robot. You, you know who predicted that was uh, Lisa. We did our interview with Lisa Jane Persky. 
yeah. who who played Dirty D in Kiss Meets the Phantom. Right. And she said, she said, you know, I have a hunch that that's not really Abner. She was right. Abner had made a whole new batch of sort of big, bulky robots that had the um, makeup motifs, but certainly just didn't, they weren't just mirror images of the band. Do they get a hold of Abner this time? Oh, absolutely, yeah. This time Abner, you know... This was not, this wasn't just the sequel. It was sort of the end of the of the story. So Abner's gone. That's right. That's right. A moment of silence for Abner Devereaux. Well, while you take that moment of silence, I'm going to say you can read the entire adventure of Kiss Meets the Phantom Two in Kiss Compendium, available November 24th. What a plug! Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a little bit about uh, Kiss concerts. What was the first Kiss concert you went to? Uh, 1979 Dynasty tour, and I want to say something about this whole thing about the at the you know, and even Kiss has done it. They'll go back to say, oh man, Kiss became a kid band, and I couldn't, I, you know, I can't believe we we did that, and I can't believe that happened. But in retrospect, it was probably the smartest thing that they ever did, even if they were un, unaware of it at the time. Because if you think about it, uh, uh, a a 16 year old in 1975 who bought kiss alive uh is probably not going to be all that nostalgic about kiss in say 1996 when the reunion happened the audience that came back and made that tour so successful were all those seven eight nine-year-olds that got into kiss exactly when i did that 78 79 80 that was the audience that was ready for the reunion. And had they not really gone that route with their music and their image and, you know, I mean, Kiss Meets the Phantom is a big part of that as well, and captured that audience, whether they knew it or not, they were really laying the groundwork for their reunion tour. Because it was guys my age that that really did feel like it was the second coming. Because... It's only when you're eight years old that something can make such a strong impression on you. That's actually a really brilliant point I, I, that I hadn't really thought of it that way. And I, I think it makes a lot of sense because the reunion was as much a reunion of image as it was anything else. Sure. And I'll tell you something. I was reading comic books. Um, well, I was looking at comic books before I was listening to Kiss. I got into Kiss when I was five, and I had already bought a lot of comic books uh, and my dad is a comic book reader, and I would, you know, when he would allow me to do so, I would look through his Jack Kirby's. That's why Unmasked was always my favorite, is still my favorite album cover. Yeah. Because yeah. I love comics first and then got into Kiss. Yeah, I totally get that, totally. I'm going to tell you something, folks. When uh, when I said that, that, that this guy was a Kiss fan, I wasn't kidding. He, <laughs> he is the real deal. So the next time your kids are flipping through the Cartoon Network and Ben 10 comes on, linger for a second and go, he's one of us. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about Ben 10? It was just something that myself and my, my, my writing partners came up with. I mean, we had no idea that it would be become as big as it as it has with you know the spin-off shows and the live action you know movies and the merchandising is insane i mean you know ben 10 is like you know kiss in 1978 i mean the merchandising is out of control you know yeah, but that's, that's also because it's good i mean part of that is just because it's a good product and and it's i mean i think that it's legitimate science fiction for children which you know a lot of people skimp out on that they don't I guess they don't credit kids as having the sophistication to to really enjoy science fiction, but Ben 10 is science fiction. It is, and the and the kids who watch it, they go on the Ben 10, you know, the Cartoon Network website and and get in there and I we've had questions asked of us at conventions by little kids that are so deep inside the the whole Ben 10 mythology. I mean, there are some questions that we can't even answer and we created the damn thing. Nice. I love seeing those kids uh, look at those toys and, and, and talk about the characters because that was that was me with Star Wars and it's still very real to my heart, you know. So yeah. I think whatever it is the kids are into like that is a very sincere thing. Yeah, it's it's very very cool. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, um, James couldn't be here tonight to do this with us, but he says hello and wishes you all the best. Um, he's got school responsibilities uh, kicking in pretty heavy right now, so uh, knock him dead, Ferk. But um, Ken and I are huge comic book fans, and 
have been for many years. So when we're not talking about Kiss, sometimes we're talking about comic books. And we were both floored to hear from you. This is a real honor to have you on the show. Oh, well, Jesus, my, my pleasure. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not big on interviews, and I don't really even like to listen to interviews. So, I mean, I, I much prefer to listen to you guys just kind of pontificate about Kiss and, and, and you know, play tracks and stuff. So I hope, uh, I hope this, people dig the episode, you know. that's our show. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check us out on the web at www.podkist.com. If uh, you have any suggestions, comments, or just want to talk to us, drop us a line at podkist at gmail.com. Be sure to check out James's other site, which is called zombiefaq.com. For all you white zombie fans, it's the place to be. A big thanks to Julian and all of our friends over at kissfaq.com. Big thanks to all of our pals at MyKissLife.net. Keith LaRue and all the staff over at KissOnline.com. They do a great job representing the hottest band in the land. Our good buddy Ken at his website, which is called KissFansite.com. Thanks for all you do for the podcast, your great graphics. If you have a Kiss-related website and want us to uh, mention it in the show notes or uh, possibly talk about it on the air, just let us know and we'll see what we can do about that. As James mentioned, be sure to check out Kiss Online for links to all the individual band members' websites. And as always, a big thanks to Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Ace Fraley, Peter Christ, Vinnie Vincent, Bruce Kulick, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and the memories of the late, great Eric Carr, and the late, great Mark St. John. You are KISS, and we are your army. Thanks for listening. Good night. <laughs>